podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to 99.94, the sound of cricket. Download our app for all our podcasts and commentary. Our shows include Red Inca and Double Century, which are hosted by me, plus shows on the West Indies, England, South Africa, Sri Lanka, and India. You can find them all via our social media at 9994DM or by searching in your podcast or YouTube places for the name of your team and 99.94, where we talk cricket. Welcome to the Wagon Wheel Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Kimber, and this show is part of the 99.94 Network. On this show, we record weekly with questions from the audience via Spotify Live. This podcast is funded by Patreon, which you can join by clicking a link in the show notes. And there are many other benefits, but one of which is to ask questions first on this show. All right, let's get this party started, shall we? Uh, Thomas says, in an ideal world, would you make the world of T20 more balanced like a football World Cup? Make the world take twenty. Uh, so regional qualifiers involving the test nations, and it's, yeah, in a perfect world you would have more qualifiers. That obviously are bringing in more a uh, different kind of qualifying tournament, which is going to be better than what we currently have. Uh, but yes, if you uh, whether it be the T Twenty World Cup or the One Day World Cup, right, you should have to qualify for it. I'm okay with the top. I don't know five or six teams, maybe not having to qualify. Um, you've won a World Cup in the last three. If you're hosting it, those sorts of things. Um, but yeah, I've said this so many times and look, it's a bit silly. The reason that test cricket was played in South Africa is because rich English people like going on a holiday to South Africa. That doesn't mean that South Africa should qualify for every tournament ever, or that England should qualify for every tournament ever because they invented sport. That's not how sport works, right? Greece don't get to qualify for every Olympics, um, in, in, you know, in, uh, all their athletes that they want to take with them, you qualify. That's what sport is supposed to be about. The best teams available at that time. And, and it's a ridiculous situation that we're in, in professional sport, uh, where in cricket, we don't think that qualifying is real. Well, I say that. And then apparently we think it's really real, um, at certain times. <laughs> Remember, if you've got any questions, line them up in the wagon wheel chat and I'll get to them when I can. Ian says, uh, which T2011s, whether domestic or international, have been the most well-rounded in terms of fulfilling roles in your opinion? Uh, so which have had the bowling options for the most scenarios and the batting that can respond to the most challenges? Chennai, obviously really all, very good at being an all-round team, but maybe didn't have the pace. Um, that's one that comes off the top of my head. Batting, I think. I think they were pretty well, they could bat all the way down. They were pretty good. I'm trying to think. England. I suppose we've never seen the ultimate England 11 where, you know, uh, Wokes, Archer, um, Moeen, um, Adil Rashid would give them incredible depth, flexibility uh, with their lineup. Maybe Sam, you'd throw Sam Curran in there as well if you wanted to. Um, I don't think we've ever seen that fully fit and functioning. Uh, well, certainly not at a World Cup. They may have played some games um, with that. I'm trying to think of anyone else. West Indies never had a wrist spinner, but probably never had a not proper 90 mile an hour bowler either um, at their peak. Um, that was supposed to be a big fella, wasn't it? And he never quite came through. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think if there's any other franchise teams I'm missing. I suppose, you know, Mumbai had that incredible, um, you know, when Kyron Pollard and the two Pandyas could both bowl 
Um, we certainly had a, they certainly had a very good team there. That Boomer, didn't they? That Bolt, leg spin was fine. Not great, maybe openers, but I think they were pretty good. So those are the ones off the top of my head, Ian, that probably had a bit more flexibility. I'm probably missing a couple there too. But those are the ones that come to mind straight away anyway. Raghav says, an interview with Zimbabwe bowler Brad Evans recently, um, he mentioned that Dave Houghton's ethos with Zimbabwe side has been compared to Basball. Okay. I mean, this is T20 though. So Basball's not a T20. It's a test um, thing. I think, you know, Basball is one of those phrases that become so popular now that it's kind of moving everywhere. Um, I would assume what Dave Houghton was saying is that we want to be more uh, aggressive in T20 games. They've certainly had a lot of success of recent times in Zimbabwe. It, I mean, what rate would you have to score at in, you know, was it Punjab um, last season when they tried to score at 10 runs and over all the way through the innings? I think you'd have to do something like that to be a basball in T20. I certainly haven't seen anything like that in Zimbabwe. I think probably what he just meant, it meant was that we're being told that it's okay to fail. We've certainly seen them attack a little bit more. Um, you know, we saw it in the, but who did they lose to? Was it Ireland? Uh, oh God, I can't remember. The West Indies game. Uh, we, we saw when they lost to the West Indies, they certainly had backed themselves to attack their way out of a hole. Um, but I didn't see anything there that was, you know, that particularly revolutionary that I could see. Lewis says, please may you describe the role of an enforcer in a bowling attack. Uh, yeah, I suppose that's come in. I wonder when that started. We saw, we, we've had Pakistani fast bowlers who specialized in middle overs or certainly, you know, Hassan Ali was maybe one of the first, but I wouldn't call him an enforcer. Um, it's really a seam bowler who bowls in the middle, but is particularly fast and bowls short. So I suppose it comes out of Liam Plunkett. I'm not sure if it's hundred percent him. Um, Umran Malik would be another one at the moment. Uh, Mark Wood is trying, is trying to be the Liam Plunkett replacement. I think if we have any others, Pat Cummins would probably do it for Australia. Um, I can't think of any others, uh, Lewis, off the top of my head, but that's what you're talking about. You're talking about someone who, it, it, they might have more flexibility. They may be able to bowl in the power play and the death, but their real job is the middle order. You, you basically, you pack your middle order in T20 with guys who can play spin, right? So they have the ability to have someone who can bowl 90 miles an hour and hit people. It means that someone like Suresh Reina um, would have struggled a lot more in an era where we had much more enforcers. And, you know, I'm not picking on him. I'm well, there were lots of guys like that out there. He's just the most obvious one. And we saw it at the end of his career when people would start to do that with him. And then it's become more of a thing. It's really came through the one day game. And it came through the one day game because when we had the four players out rather than five players out in the middle, um, it meant that it was very hard to close off specific boundaries. And so what you then had a situation of, uh, was where the only way to close off those boundaries was to bowl one length. And that length was generally short. So we've seen the West Indies try this a lot. But, you know, that's generally what the enforcer role is. So, uh, you know, in Plunkett's case, and I suppose he's the, if not the the beginning of it, certainly maybe the, the expert of it, he basically would bowl cross-seam deliveries hard into the pitch. Some would skid through, some would take off, and then occasionally he would bowl bounces. And because he was strong and he was fast, it's very hard to flat back him, bat, flat bat him <laughs> back over his own head or over mid on or mid off, which meant that you then could have the two fielders out square and fine. Um, and so that's really where that position came from. Um, I don't know where the name came from. Um, I'm sure someone hopefully out there will know, but that's that's my memory of, of sort of when that role started getting talked about. Um, and still, weirdly enough, it's probably it's one of those things. It's like ah. Uh, um, uh, 
It's like a lot of those things. He bowls a heavy ball. It ends up being used incorrectly. It's like baseball that we talked about before. Um, but the very basic premise of it is that you can ruffle people up with pace in the middle overs um, where usually historically they're more used to facing spin. Um, Renee says, is Afghanistan slightly overrated as a cricket nature by a wider cricket community? Uh, throughout the 2000s when Bangladesh, well, laugh is so great. Uh, yes, I see where this is going. So, yeah, um, Bangladesh had a lot of big wins. I'd say that if you go back, it'd be interesting to see how much more cricket Bangladesh played than Afghanistan. Um, so, yeah, they haven't beaten some of the more major teams, Afghanistan, um, but they also only play them very rarely and very fleetingly. Um, and uh, they, they mostly play them at World Cups when teams should be arguably at their best. Um, but Bangladesh didn't have a 90 mile an hour bowler when they started. Um, they didn't have the world's best wrist spinner. They didn't have players who could come in and hit sixes. It's a different world than it was when Bangladesh played. And uh, I, I mean, you could phrase your question the complete other way. Is Was Bangladesh slightly underrated? And that's what I said kind of all along. Um, we It took New Zealand, th was it 39 years to win their first test series? Um, Bangladesh did fine. Just that people didn't know enough about history and jumped to conclusions. I, I thought at the time uh, that Bangladesh did fine. I think Afghanistan's doing fine as well. Afghanistan is never going to win consistently because they don't have two, three, four, five, six, seven batters. So if you look at Ireland, Ireland's great run was having consistent batters. You know, that keeps you in the game and then your bowlers can um, occasionally have a good day. Afghanistan don't have the ability to make consistent runs. It's not that they're not a good team. We know that individually there's a lot of talent there. We haven't seen enough of that talent come out with consistent batters. You know, I think I said this on the Edges and Sledges podcast, now available on 99.94 Network, um, the other day that uh, I wrote in, what, 2016, they're a team of number eights. They're slightly better than that now, but they're still more or less a team of number eights. And that's a big problem for Afghanistan cricket, but... There are certainly some younger players coming through um, that they have high hopes for. We'll see uh, if that changes. Uh, Renee also asks, uh, last time you said that the IPL should try to be more like the NBA than the EPL. Uh, should the IPL have more black athletes? You mean, I definitely did not mean that. The EPL has plenty of black athletes, doesn't it? Um, uh, what I meant is that the, football, the English Football Premier League, whatever it's called, um, is not the best league in the world, so much so that every great player plays in it in its prime, right? In the NBA, you get a few people who don't want to leave Europe in basketball, but the best players on earth usually eventually go through the NBA. Um, and the, the difference between the NBA and um, uh, let's say the Spanish league um, is massive. You know, the difference between the EPL and the Football Spanish League or the Bundesliga or whichever the second best league is, you know, uh, French League, whatever, um, is not that massive, right? The quality of football is really quite level across all those, even if you uh, – and I don't know if the Premier League's the biggest one. I mean, I suppose you'd have to look at champions trophies, but I'm assuming they're, they're quite up there. Um, from, from that perspective, um, uh, but whereas the NBA, you know, if you – if you put the best Bundesliga team and the best French team and the best Spanish team in the Premier League, I think they'd all hold their own. Um, I forget the name of the team that Luka Doncic played for or, or um, uh, what's the French team that uh, Victor uh, Wembenyana is playing for. Those kinds of teams would not would barely win any games in the NBA ever. 
um, the difference is that, and I think that's where the uh, the IPO should be going towards, uh, and I think probably is. Uh, James says, is Joe Root England's best Red Bull off-spinner? If not, who's better? No, Mo and Ali's still a better Red Bull off-spinner. I mean, do we count him? I suppose maybe that's what you're asking. Um, I didn't look enough at county cricket this year um, uh, to to give you a, a clear notion that someone else hasn't come through. Um, Gareth Batty probably still thinks it's him and his coaching um, is another one. I mean, Joe Root is a really flawed off-spinner. I don't mean that in a bad way. It just... You know, he used himself beautifully when he was a captain. He used himself when the pitch was spinning a long way and he could bowl because he bowled really quick and that gave him an advantage and he used himself against left-handers. If you look at his record outside of those two things, he's, you know, they're probably a lot of better uh, off-spinners. But those two specific skills are really handy and when you are the sixth option like he is, you know, that's a huge advantage to have because... Your sixth bowling option should only really be used in emergencies or in situations when everything's in their favour. And I think that from that perspective, I would have thought that uh, Joe Root used himself really well. So, yeah, he's not a better... I'm sure there are better off-spinners in the English game than him. Um, I'm not sure he's a better off-spinner than Oli Rehner, for instance. I know Oli Rehner's long gone, but do you know what I mean? Like even very average level um, English off-spinners are better than Joe Root. But Joe Root's actual skills are still really, really handy. Uh, if he had to bowl like a full-timer, like the other English off-spinners do, I think he'd average 50, 55 in, in test cricket, maybe 45 to 50 in in one day in, in um, first-class cricket. Um, he, in first-class cricket, he probably should be worse. My memory is there's usually less left-handers, although not so many that that would affect it. He wouldn't bowl on fifth days as much, and he wouldn't bowl in Asia as much, and conditions that really suit him. So um, if he was playing first-class cricket in England, I don't think you'd be sitting there going, he's a spectacular off-spinner. Um, but his actual skills, as I said, are really interesting and uh, can be really handy for the English team. Um, in certain situations. Cam says, I just listened to an interview with human rights advocate and former Socceroo, that's an Australian soccer football player, uh, Craig Foster on Cricket Unfiltered about should be doing with the Afghanistan in this World Cup considering the issues and the new regime and their treatment of women. Had the ICC already given uh, too much uh, to Afghanistan to start sanctioning them now? Yeah. I mean, they allowed Afghanistan to play without a women's team before the Taliban got back in power. That was probably where that error came from. Um, it's a really weird one to suddenly say the Taliban shouldn't be involved um, are any worse than the previous people were from that perspective. It's died down a little bit, obviously. When it, when the Taliban first got involved, there was you know legitimate talk that they may not play in the next World Cup and all this sort of stuff. Um, it's, I think it's a really interesting issue um, from beginning to end as women's cricket gets bigger specifically but also uh you know once you if you say that the taliban is an evil government you're not uh, where are you drawing the line at some of the other evil governments out there um in cricket you know um it, some of the western governments have invaded other countries um uh, you know uh there's certainly problems with some of the asian um, governments zimbabwe um you know played throughout um you know, Mugabe's reign. It, so I, I don't know. But if you're going on the women's one, I kind of feel like the ICC fucked that up originally by not, um, by allowing that. And I'm not sure that they needed to do that. And they did it on so very quietly. 
Um, and then when the Taliban thing happened, they got kind of caught out. It, look, it's a really interesting question. Uh, I haven't listened to the, the episode that you're talking about, obviously, uh, with Craig Foster. I, I've heard him talk a lot about um, human right, rights issues and everything, and I could certainly understand why uh, he would be questioning whether Afghanistan should be at the, at the World Cup. Um, interestingly enough, it's certainly not all the Afghanistan team, but there's a lot of Afghanistan team that is really progressive on a lot of these issues in a way that perhaps if you go back to South Africa in um, uh, in the late 1960s were not. I know that white players did eventually uh, have that walk-off moment um, after that. But I do think that there was definitely, there was definitely a different um, uh, feeling than, you know, obviously what happened with Rashid Khan when the Taliban took control. Um, but yes, it's um, it's a really fascinating issue. But I, I do think the ICC kind of made the original mistake. Um, also, Afghanistan from a from a cricket point of view, Afghanistan is a great story for cricket. And you know, do they want to walk away from that? I don't know. Um, uh, but yeah, uh, it's the whole thing I find really fascinating and have for quite some time now. All right. Uh, Remember, if you've got any questions, uh, put your hand up in the room like Famshi has. Hey, Jared. How are you doing? I'm very good. What's your question, mate? Um, slightly longer. Um, so I'm going for it. So you recently mentioned in uh, one of the wagon wheels how flat wickets in Pakistan gave rise to fast bowlers. And if putting a logic to Australia, you probably be a good place to force and balance and then... Uh, going off of Nathan Levin sitting against the spin period by Amin Stone by left-handed. So is there a way you can overcome all these evolutions that are bought out by conditions? Like if you had to produce like a batch of seam bowling all-rounders or say left-handed batsmen, how would you overcome these conditions and, you know, create that supply chain that's really rounded to build your team? No is probably the short answer, that you can't overcome your conditions. The longer, more convoluted answer would be India. The BCCI has, what, between 10 and $20 billion available to them. I don't know where that money goes, but could they not build facilities that would allow um, for those things to happen slightly better? Maybe. They could also spend billions of dollars on that and it still wouldn't go anywhere because people coming off the street play the way they play, right? You know, that... Uh, you would how, how much would you how much money would you have to pump in to get that stuff back? What you can do is you can develop players in a better way, and I think that it would be very fair to say that so far in um, international cricket we haven't developed players. But I mean, if you look at if you look at Damien Martin is a really interesting one. Hardik Pandya is another really interesting one. I'm trying to think of some other. Uh, sort of out of the box, to Bray Shamsi. It's not impossible for these cultures to produce these cricketers. Is that just that they got good help when they were young? Is it possible that they um, uh, were fast learners once they got, you know, on the road? Um, is it possible they just have a freakish skill set that works across, you know, multiple conditions or, or allows them to play in a different way? I don't know is, is, is the answer. Partly, we don't know, I don't think, because there's probably not, you know, the problem with international cricket is there aren't enough top-level international players to probably get the kind of data that we would need to know if we could fix this. And I think that certainly is is an issue um, going ahead. Um, but uh, the fact that we do have players who, 
trying to think of someone else. Someone, well, actually, I was going to say Jimmy Adams. I'm not sure if Jimmy Adams is a perfect example. But, you know, if we do have players like, you know, Jimmy Adams, I, it, I think that the peak West Indies is the best example of a place that if you do have players who have to learn in a very uh, extreme environment, be it fast bowling or spin bowling in those particular cases, or flat pitches, because those are the three different kinds of pitches you get in the West Indies, um, that their players seemed a lot more rounded than everyone else's in cricket at that point. However, how much of that was also that they were playing overseas league cricket as well? That's the bit I don't know. So it depends on how much you weigh that up. But I don't think there's ever I don't think there's a better place to learn test cricket than the West Indies from a pitch variable situation where you can literally go from, you know, um, Sabina Park or, um, uh, or St. Lucia um, all the way down to Guyana or Trinidad, right? Um, and so the variable pitches there are so extreme that is that why the West Indies had an advantage over everyone else or was it the professionalism that they got through Kerry Packer and playing county cricket and everything else? I don't know is the answer to you. Um, so I don't know if there is a system that we can overcome that with. Um, I'd love to see India use a billion dollars to try it, um, but I don't. I don't know. Part of me thinks back to the MRF Pace Academy, um, and that didn't particularly work. Right? Is that fair to say? Would you, as an Indian fan, would you say that didn't particularly work? No, I don't think it worked. Yeah, it wasn't bad. I think it made better seam bowlers technically. But I'm not sure it made better test bowlers. Uh, is Freesanth, is he the number one guy to come out of that? Is, am I missing anyone else? I think Zaheer had a stint there. I think pretty much all Indian Seema's had a stint there. Yeah. yeah. I mean, maybe maybe that works then. I don't know. But they seem to be better since the MRF Pace Academy, right? <laughs> when it comes to seam bowling. So I don't know. I thought a long time ago that, and this, this is moment has passed, but I thought a very long time ago, I wrote this in 2007, 2008, that if you're running Australian cricket or English cricket, you should be doing a deal with um, Sri Lanka and uh, building a state-of-the-art complex in Sri Lanka and, and even allowing the Sri Lankans to bring players back and forth to your country as well and literally having players there for four months of the year um, preparing and getting better for cricket in Asia um, so that you didn't have that particular problem. Players were already playing, this is before IPL obviously, but players were already playing uh, in county cricket and um, English cricket cricketers were playing in club cricket in Australia. Um, but what really needed to happen, I thought, was that a, a structured system, and I've talked to people in Cricket Australia about this, and they, they thought I was a lunatic for even mentioning it. Um, Australia's kind of moved towards that with what they've done in the UAE, but not to the level that I would have ever envisioned it um and uh i think that but the problem is now you don't even have your cricketers for that long right so you really have if you're going to do that you have to do it with the kids who are 15 to 22 that brings in selection bias um you know uh, who's the best 15 year old may not be the best 22 year old all those sorts of things um and you're investing a lot of money and a lot of guys who might end up being you know parking attendants and lawyers and bus drivers. <laughs> um, uh, but that is probably the best way to be able to do what you're doing because that's the period that they need to learn it. They don't really – it's much harder for them to learn it in their 20s than it is for them to learn it as teenagers. Um, uh, but that is not ideal and I don't think anyone would ever do that anymore. I, really, I don't think that's what international cricket is for. India is the only place that maybe would do it and I don't think they will. I think their franchises will take over. 
Um, and the franchises probably don't want their players maybe to be as rounded. Uh, or maybe they do. Maybe they do if they want to win in America and South Africa and UAE. I don't know. But as it currently stands, the IPL is the most important. <laughs> May I ask a follow up? Yeah, if it's quick. Uh, yeah. Um, so, the, uh, so I've had to add like the golden generation of Paul Douglas penalties to early 2000s and then they struggled to replace Jack Carlos. Was there an evolutionary reason why they were able to produce uh, really good scene bowling all-rounders or was that just like a, a, an amulet? It's not from the 90s. It's, I mean, it starts in 1890. Uh, Jimmy Sinclair, uh, you know, and, and those sorts of guys came through. Uh, Mike Proctor, um, yeah, uh, I mean, even Peter Pollock could bat. Um, uh, Clive Rice, uh, <laughs> Brian McMillan, all the way through, right? So um, almost from the beginning, I'm probably missing some in the 19... 19- the 20s and 30s as well. Um, they also had a few good all-rounders who were spinners as well, like Aubrey Faulkner. Um, uh, so, no, uh, I don't know why South Africans do that. Uh, I don't know what the difference is. You have a look at some of... Uh, no, I, I don't know I, is, the, is the best um, response to that. Sorry, I wish I had a proper answer. Um, but they have managed to make the, the only thing I would say, and I'm really, this is really going out there on a limb from a, um, you know, there's not a lot of science to back this up. The one thing I would say is that the South African school system, I think has been the best system at training players technically um, over a long period of time. I don't know why that is, Con- uh, conditions, lifestyle, um, coaching structures, whatever it may be. And I wonder if if you're a very good bowler in Australia, I'm just picking Australia as a random place. If you're a very good bowler in Australia, uh, you probably, unless you show really good batting talent early on, you probably end up down the tail. If you're in South Africa and there's so much extra coaching around, are they just coaching their batters, bowlers as well? Do you know what I mean? Like, is that a... Is that a possible answer? I don't know. It could also be a giant fluke, right? So we don't know why West Indies, South Africa, and England haven't produced left-arm seamers in the way that other countries have, right? Um, uh, I don't think there's anything that those three places have in common that would suggest that that should be the case. In fact, if you read all the literature about left-handers, it says that Asian cultures generally have less left-handers. But we're not seeing that with Pakistan and with India, right? And or with Sri, even with Sri Lanka. Um, so I don't know. <laughs> it's probably the best answer there. It's a, it's a really good question. But, yeah, I don't have anything there for you. But thank you very much, mate. Have a good day. Thank you so much, Jared. Harihara, you there, mate? Hi, Jared. Can you hear me? I can. What's your question? Yeah. So just I think we are speaking uh, about a South African all-rounder again. I just wanted to ask about both, uh, you know, the spin bowling all-rounder. I, in the late 2000s, I just, I don't know for what reason, but I just seemed to like him. So, and I've been, I've been following him a little after that, but they just lost track. So can you just explain a little bit what happened to him and his career? Because, you know, he just turned up in the BBL a few years ago. So I just wanted to know, I thought he was a huge prospect for South Africa. Johan Boatsy, you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, he was a chucker. <laughs> that's, that's why his career slowed down. Um, he had a really bad action. Um, when the, when the, uh, 
when people started, uh, what was that, 2014, when uh, Mr. Srinivasan said he wanted um, throwing to be thrown out of the game. Sorry, everyone, for that. Um, and the ICC kind of took it seriously at, at a similar period. Um, and then they had the political uh, balance to be able to do that. We saw a lot of guys like Prajan Oja, Shane Chillingford, um, I suppose Syed Ajmal even, um, uh, Prespa Utsaya from Zimbabwe just kind of disappear. Uh, and they all disappeared for the same reason. They couldn't do it. Johan Bota fixed his action. I think his biggest problem was his um, Dusra. His actual off spinner usually was fine. His, that's my memory. So he could continue to bowl. And he basically became uh, a bowler who I suppose he was almost a little bit like Mark Wood, but without the physicality of Mark Wood, but very, a very smart bowler at, at the end. But he never really – he couldn't spin the ball the way he used to with his old action. Um, so he really was bowling, I don't know, a bit like on like Tom Cooper or um, I'm trying to think one of those um, Riyam Parag type guys just mixing his pace up, mixing it, trying to vary everything up, um, and he wasn't very good. He then he moved to, I want to say South Australia, but maybe it was New South Wales, um, worked on his batting quite a bit. He was a very good fielder as well. Um and had a brief resurgence as an Australian player, I think, in the Big Bash. Um, maybe got citizenship. I can't remember the full details of that. But he, I thought he was on path to become a coach. I'm not sure where he is anymore. But that's essentially where he went from being a very important player in South Africa to fading away was they took away his main, I'd say two weapons, his ability to really rag the ball um, and also his ability to spin it the other way. After that, what you have is a very thorough professional cricketer uh, who could bat but not, you know, we're talking about number eight really at best, uh, but a clever number eight and a very fit number eight, very good at running between wickets, very good fielder. And I've never met him, but everyone who met him says he's a very inspirational character. People loved having him around, uh, a thorough professional, all those sorts of things. So I think there was certainly a movement to keep him around, uh, but he wasn't the player that he had been before, um, which makes sense. He physically couldn't do what he had, he had done for a long time. Uh, so just a follow-up question. So if you could mm -hmm. give a ballpark figure of you know, what percentage of bowlers who had their action as suspect have come back successfully? Um, well, Sunil Narayan. Um, I mean, I don't know. What was it? It was probably about 20 or 25 of them. The problem is, it depends on where you are, right? So Sunil Narayan, there was enough money with Sunil Narayan for him to hire a personal bowling coach to rebuild his action, Carl Crow, right? Um, was there enough money in Pragyan Oja to be able to do that? Did anyone think it was worth it? Um, if you can't rebuild it, it's really hard. So, you know, Scottish cricket uh, had um, Tom Sowell, who bowled a lot like Johan Bota, in fact. Um, and he got called during the 2018 World Cup qualifiers. Um, he was a really, really good bowling option for them. Do they have the ability to work with him in the same way that Sunil Narayan had? Uh, Syed Ajmal did come back, um, had a lot of work done uh, on his action. Some of those actions, Shane Chillingford's action, for instance, I don't know how you fix that. I'm not sure you can fix Tom Sola, Johan Bota's action either they can come back but they won't be the same kind of bowlers um Pragyan Oja again some of these guys they were their actions were too far gone I think um because we hadn't been calling people for chucking since Murali and it meant that people were just getting further and further um into professional careers without anyone trying to fix them 
Um, and then they all got called, you know, mid-career. So I would think that the percentage of people who came back was really, really low. If if you thought there was something in Ebola or maybe they were a batter, um, uh, you can work on, I'm trying to think of, there was someone else, there was a batter who came back and, and continued to bowl. It was Kane Williamson ever called? Um, but uh, there have been players who've worked on it and been able to fix it. But it, if you're being successful and part of the reason you're being successful, even if it's no fault of your own, but your action has degraded this way or is that way naturally, and you're being successful because you're throwing at 20, 25 degrees, 30 degrees, some of these guys, 40 degrees, some of these guys. How hard is it then to re... You're almost going to have to have a second career as a professional, as a different kind of bowler, right? Most of the players who were called, they weren't called because they were borderline. They were called because they were massively, you know, uh, uh, straightening that arm. Um, that's a hard thing to, to pull back, I would think. Anyway, mate, thank you for your questions. Thank you. Will, you there, mate? Uh, hi, Jared. I was just wondering, I didn't know if you knew anything about it, but there seemed to be some like incredibly fast speed on speeds coming back from like the England-Australia series and stuff. And I don't know whether, like, because especially Chris Walks was hitting like 140 and I think Stokes nearly did as well. And Sam Curran was well up there, like higher than I'd ever seen him. But I don't know if like, the England guys just made like a big effort, like we're going to just bowl as fast as we can can every ball or if there was like something to it well wokes and and stokes can both bowl over 90 miles an hour i mean they've both been recorded not consistently but regularly over that speed um so if you told me they were in the you know low 140s i wouldn't be massively shocked by that what was current um uh up at i i don't know exact figures to be honest i just remember there was a lot of people like really surprised i i, okay. I probably should have got an exact stat but no, 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 that's fine. No, no, I mean, because Curran would be the easy one. If it, if it said Curran was in the, you know, low 140s, I think I'd be a bit more surprised and I would say it was the speed guns. Um, but without without that, uh, the whole technology, I, there is a persistent rumour that that there are certain TV companies that um, use a hot gun. I think that's a, that's a term they use in baseball where it's slightly inflated. Um. I don't. I, that, I'm assuming the series you were talking about was on Fox. I'm not sure if that is. If Fox is one of the ones, um, it's not something that I spend that much time with. Also, I'm not sure. You watch Kyle Jamieson rush people, and then you look at the speeds that go up. I still think there's a real uh, bias when it comes to the speed of bowlers. When it comes to the shorter bowlers, you know, the old, I don't know if you remember the old days of like Ian Harvey bowling at the same pace as Glenn McGrath. I don't think it felt that way if you were facing him. right? Um, so I do think there is a bias towards shorter bowlers. So I, I try and look at it over a consistent period of time um, rather than individual things when I'm looking at, at speed gun speeds. But when you're broadcasting, you know, you, you read the number out in front of you and you don't question it that much. Um, I can't remember who was I commentating on recently. Someone was bowling really fast. Um, it was at Nokia, I think, bowling a really fast spell against India and I was commentating for TalkSport 2 on the radio. And it's like, you do you do use it. Um, I'm not sure how much we, in cricket, it is talked about as much um, from that perspective. Um the only thing I would add is that Hawkeye, I would have thought, would have been a more accurate um, thing. And I'm not sure they always put the Hawkeye number up. Um, if they, they might use a different speed gun. Um, 
that would be my only, I don't know, uh, thing worth putting. But I, there is certainly a rumour within cricket that there are producers, not producers, but, you know, broadcasts that have a, uh, a hotter gun um, and that it shows a little bit more pace. I don't know if that's true or not, if we're being honest. It, it, I kind of feel if that was true, you know, we'd see more people cross 160 again, but um, I don't know. It, it's not – the actual science of it is not ideal. Um, and realistically, the speed of which it comes out of your hand is maybe um, – not the most important thing uh, when it comes to those sorts of things. How fast does it come off the pitch, et cetera, et cetera, all those other – how fast does it get to the other end, everything else. But, uh, but yeah, um, to answer your question, I don't – I didn't see those games, so I can't give you an exact answer. But if, if Sam, Sam Curran was 143Ks, I don't know. I don't think it's Hawkeye all the time. Hawkeye certainly measure them. Um, I don't know if it's Hawkeye that flashes it up on the screen straight away, though, because – I don't think Hawkeye renders that quickly. Um, again, I haven't talked to anyone at Hawkeye, so maybe they do do it now and maybe it is more accurate than it used to be. Um, but if, if you have a look at how long it takes for Hawkeye to render a ball for an LBW, um, that information does take a little while to be processed and we seem to get the speed gun uh, – we seem to get the speeds of the balls up pretty quickly on the screen, don't we? So I don't know, Is again, is that answer. Thank you. No worries. Hey, Keshav, you there? Yeah, hi, Zared. Hey, mate, what's your question? Yeah, um, so it's regarding Sri Lanka. Uh, they qualified today, but in hindsight, do you think they would have actually preferred coming second and, you know, qualified to the more familiar group of Asian teams where, you know, they've just come uh, after winning the Asia Cup and they've defeated India, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, and now they're in the apparent group of depths where, you know, uh, the teams are stronger given given the conditions. So if you were Silverwood or Shanaka, would you have preferred coming second? I suppose, but that's not really an option, is it? I mean, they barely got through as it was. I don't think they're in a position to try and force their way to coming second. And I don't think they're going to win in either group. I don't think they're going to make the semifinals in either group. So I'm not sure it's going to make a huge difference to them. Really, like uh, I thought it, it would be easier for them in this group because they've come, uh, you know, with wins against three of these teams and, you know, uh, the the other team uh, would be, uh, the, sorry, the other group would be tougher for them. So probably, you know, they will fancy their chances a little more in this one. I, mean, I see what you're saying, but they're not very, I don't think they're going to make the semifinals in either group. Um, but you can't, what are you saying they should have done? Made it so that they came second? Do you know what I mean? There's, it's not really... A, a, an option for them to have anyway. Um, on top of that, they lost their first game, which threw their entire camp campaign into, you know, into, uh, into a panic. Um, so I don't think they were trying to gerrymander it so that they came second in the group. Um, I don't think they would make the semifinals if they were in that other group either. Yes, they played them in Asia. This is completely different. Um, they haven't impressed me so far in Australia. Um, maybe they've got the cobwebs out and they're going to be slightly better. Don't think they, just because they beat the other teams in Asia, they would suddenly be, I'm not sure their Asia Cup form was brilliant either. And if you look at their form over the last year, they've won about 50% of their games. And um, with that in mind, I'm not sure there is a group that they would have had 
great level of success in um unless they start playing a lot better than they currently are and then obviously they can they can have some luck but at the moment they're not playing very good cricket don't think they'd be playing very good cricket if they went up against india or pakistan or or um, south africa um in the other group either if we're being honest but why why did people then have so many expectations like i heard uh, bharat also uncovered that you know he thought uh, sri lanka would do well in this world cup well they won the asia cup and there was a lot of hype around them in the last world cup um not everyone does the deepest dive of numbers that i do um you know i, I don't know how many people went through other than the, the problem with cricket as a whole at the moment is that we play in very different locations and that there's so much cricket it's hard to do a proper deep dive into how a team will go before a tournament because there's so much other cricket being played so i know the teams in this group a and b very well and sri lanka happens to be in there i don't have as probably as solid a view on some of the other teams um in the next round of the tournament because i haven't had time to prepare for them in the same way um uh it's also possible that people overrated them because they just won the Asia Cup, um, you know, which is a normal thing for for people to do. I think if you go back through their Asia Cup form, though, they weren't. They, it's not like they won every game and dominated, is it? Right? And it was in Asia, and now they're in Australia, and they just lost to Namibia. And I don't think they batted particularly well against UAE or Netherlands. Um, I, I said before the tournament, I didn't think they were a genuine semi-final chance team. I thought their best case scenario in this tournament was being in the conversation for the semifinals, um, which they still might be, you know, they've now played the proper warmups. They've maybe they've got their cobwebs away and they'll be better. But based on what I've seen over the last you know year or so, I still think they're a pretty flawed T20 side. One more thing I wanted to ask uh, uh, your take on. Uh, so, it's a different question. So, uh, Williamson and Bavuma. So, you know, uh, Williamson had probably the worst IPL uh, in the history. And uh, Bavuma has had similar stats in international T20. And, but both have the captains batting at the top of the order. Like, how do you see them going into this uh, tournament? Or do you see them uh, continue in the format after this World Cup, regardless of the result? Uh, well, Bavuma, I don't know. Um, Bavum is stats outside of international cricket for T20 are not too bad. Um, he hasn't managed to crack it at T20 um, at the moment. I suppose it also depends on whether they think there's someone else who wants to be captain. And, you know, I mean, remember, he's captain by accident, um, essentially, especially in this particular format. Um, Williamson, I su- for New Zealand, I wouldn't be surprised if we don't see him anymore. I'd be shocked if he gave up IPL just yet, but that probably depends on his elbow. Um, I mean, his whole career depends on whether he thinks he can continue to do what he once did. Um, everyone I know uh, who I trust from that field thinks he will never be able to bat the way he, he did before. Uh, like most professional athletes, he probably thinks that's wrong and he can overcome it. The, the truth will be if, if he starts to make runs after uh, or in this tournament or after this tournament and he feels good again, then he might continue to play. Um, if he doesn't, um, then uh, then he'll probably he'll probably pull the pin. Bavum is still quite young. Uh, he's in. I think Bavum is in his batting prime. <coughs> and weirdly enough, I I'm not sure Bavum has ever batted better. Um, uh, he's been batting great in Test cricket. I think he's done some good stuff in One Day cricket. I know he struggled recently in India, but I think up until then he was certainly batting brilliantly in One Day cricket. Um, 
I'm not sure T20 is his format. Uh, but that, again, depends on what South Africa can do with that team. Um, it was supposed to be Quentin de Kock, um, I assume, as captain. Um, and they're not in that situation. Does does David? Does anyone want it, right? As as South African cricket moves more and more towards them, their key players being signed up with franchises, does anyone want the international captaincy job, which means they might have to say no to the franchises more often, um, which is going to affect their earnings? Um, Bavoom is not in a position where that will happen. So he might be the man who puts his hand up, uh, but I don't know. Anyway, thanks for your questions. Nadika, are you there? Yes. Uh, hello, Jared. How you doing? What's your question? I was wondering, do we know how much TV uh, footage from like the 70s, 80s, 90s, do we have uh, how just lying around? Like, are there tapes of all these that are just lying in some warehouse or like do we are we just stuck with whatever Robert Linda happened to record uh well I mean he's recording what uh he's recording the archive that Fox have which would be Cricket Australia's archive I assume um there's obviously there's a couple of guys in India who do a similar thing now I've forgotten his name is it I want to say Monarch but maybe it's not Monarch is it I forget his name uh, but there's a guy in India um, who does a similar kind of thing, who's taping stuff off TV. Um, my guess is there's probably a few treasure troves out there of footage. There'd be a lot of, you know, especially English cricket, there'd be an absolute ton of international cricket that I don't think is almost ever seen on TV that would probably be in BBC vaults um, uh, somewhere. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of sort of lower-end cricket um, uh Oh, wait, someone's, damn, she's just said, Manak Sinha, that's, that's a guy. Uh, so he does a lot of uh, recording off the TV as well. Um, but, w- you know, what Manak and Robolinda are doing is stuff that's already been broadcast uh, of recent times, recent-ish in Robolinda's case. Um, but, yeah, I would assume that the BBC would have absolutely vaults and vaults of international games um, and domestic games uh, as well. Um the ABC in Australia should have a lot of stuff, um, some of which has been broadcast, but not all of it has been. Um, I don't know how much cricket was recorded in West Indies, Pakistan, India, even New New Zealand should have had a bit, but I, I don't know what percentage of the games were recorded. We don't even have scorecards from all test matches. Uh, sorry, that's wrong. We, we don't have the, the score sheets. We do have the scorecards um, from all the matches. So my guess is that, you know, those exist um, the same way that a lot of footage does. There would be a lot of probably camera footage of, uh, sorry, video footage or cinema footage, I suppose, um, one camera footage of from the side. So the old Pathé clips that you could see of the old England games where they had like one camera up high you know, and they went around the field a little bit. I'm assuming there's a few more great games of that out there. Um, so I don't know how much cricket there would be out there, but there certainly would be a lot more than we've seen. Um, all the, even the World Series cricket, um, you know, we don't see those games anymore. My guess is that Channel 9 would have those in their vaults as well. Um, whether How much of that stuff has been digitized and how much of it is accessible um uh, you know and who goes through it i don't know um 
I do, I have actually thought this a lot, especially with Roe Belinda becoming more mainstream. Uh, I don't know if the ICC were going to use Roe Belinda or if it was Cricket Australia, but I, I, I had a feeling there was a board um, uh, that was interested in him. And not just him, there are other other people out there, probably like like Manak as well. Um, eventually, do you not? If you're bored, do you not want someone to digitize and put everything into a system? Because um, you could actually run it. You could get someone like those guys to go back and look at it, but put it through the modern um, computer software like MV Play or Kadamba system or whoever you know, whichever system you use in your country, so that you know you could uh, every cover drive that Garfield Soap is hit in your country, you could just whack up uh, 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 you whack up 20 of them in a row, um, which means it would be easy to use old footage. I would say that part of the problem with the old footage now is um, that outside of, you know, a few select highlights like, I don't know, Terry Jenner being hit in the head and, you know, those sorts of things, That not that that was a highlight for Terry Jenner, but um, I would say it's actually not particularly easy to access that even if the – even if the, the host broadcaster has that, those vaults. Um, and so eventually what you probably need is cricket boards to go through every bit of footage that they can find, talk to the old broadcasters, digitise it, and then have it accessible for modern broadcasters to be able to use, um, uh, although there's sometimes problems with that. But that, you know, that is, uh, I mean, Cricket Australia have basically built their brand on cricket video footage Um over the last few years, um, on, you know, online, uh, you know, the, the writers, are, you know, their writers are leaving um, again. The writers don't get to write what they want anyway because they're working for a cricket uh, public, you know, a cricket board. Um, so it's really, you know, the cricket.com.au really is a video sort of platform. Um, other boards will probably work that out as well. There's good money in old highlights, um, but it, you need someone to go through it. And I think that's probably why we haven't seen as much of it. And perhaps in this YouTube-driven world, um, things about like that start to change. But um, I don't know if they will or not. I mean, Cricket Australia could have hired Roe Belinda any time in the last, what, what 15 years? <laughs> um, uh, and maybe he doesn't want to do it, but he's not the only person out there that does stuff like that. Laurie Colliver has a lot of old footage as well that he's taped. Um, you know, there's a lot of guys. I mean, Roe Belinda, the big difference with Roe Belinda is he's very good at accessing the footage. Um, so he must be good at the way he stores it and the way he keeps it and 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 tags it, um, and that he shares it. Not everyone does that, um, so it is a little bit uh, different. Thanks for your question, though, mate. Thank you, Jared. Hey, William, what's your question? Hey, uh, copy a sore phrase. I'm sorry, um, but my question is about the T20 World Cup, and I was wondering, mm-hmm. um, especially with the expansion of teams, whether you think that there'll be more of a every team like entering on an equal footing rather than having like the, the qualifying within the tournament that we currently have now before like the Super 12? So, uh, well, you know, the next tournament w- will be different. So there will be more of a normal uh, World Cup next tournament. Is that what you're referring to or is it? am I miss, missing the question? Sorry. Oh, I, I, I didn't know that. I knew it was expanding. I didn't know it was actually changing. Yeah, so I think the idea going forward is to have a more football-style tournament again. Um, it's Weirdly enough, it's not really working for them. Um, a lot of it was to gerrymander the India-Pakistan game. Um, they could, there's many other ways of being able to do that uh, that they could have done, but they decided to take it in this particular one. Um, uh, but, yeah, I, I think they will move towards it. Uh, associate cricket's never been stronger. I think it will get stronger even more so over the next five to ten years. 
Um, and so, uh, yeah, uh, from that perspective, the only thing I would say is a lot of reason why associate cricket is so strong is the ICC actually funded coaches and development and video analysis and all these different things for all those teams. Um, and then the last CEO who then got fired for bullying, um, it essentially came in and stripped all that away. So the next five years of associate cricket are going to be really, really interesting. And it might be that franchise cricket is the thing that helps the associates because some of their players get, you know, I mean, Baz Delita, it's a perfect example of it, he's going to be a very good franchise player. Even if it's on a low level, he may not end up in an IPL team, but he's going to be a good player. So things might change there as well. Um, thanks for your question. Uh, Alan, are you there? Yeah, hello. Quick one to finish off. All right. Um, how do you think Ireland's T20 top order batting um, is going to fare um, just in general for the next while? With kind of like sterling out of form, Balbrani doesn't seem to be up to much. Mm. No, it's really interesting. I've been thinking about it a lot. Um, uh, you know, I don't know if you've seen much of my coverage, but I've started to say they're a bit almost, they feel like sterling or bust uh, with that top order. I think Lorcan Tucker is a talent, but I don't think he's a top four talent at the moment. Whether he develops into that will be really crucial. Uh, Harry Tector, I do think, could be a really, really good player. Andy Balbrani's just so confusing as a player. When he's in form, he looks like he's could be playing in any team in the world. And when he's not in form, you wonder how he ever made runs before. Um, but I worry about Ireland's top seven, really, as a, as a an entire group. Um, kind of scan from George Dockrell to about the other day, of course. Um, but I don't see that level of batting talent coming through. I hear from my friends who, you know, work in cricket in Ireland and in and, and Europe and follow these things that Scotland seems to have a bunch of younger players coming through that they think will be a good batting lineup and Ireland don't. Um, there's a lot of pressure put on Lorcan Tucker. Uh, it's not, not, not that, uh, you know, it's not like anyone's saying he's going to be the savior, but I think there's a lot of pressure on him to bat up the order when he's not ready yet. Um, but he has to bat up the order because that's why they had Andy McBride up the order, right? Cause they literally can't find top order players. Uh, Harry Tector, I think, will probably handle that a little bit more because um, I, I think he's more ready for it. I don't see Lorcan Tucker as a top four international player, um, but he could be a really interesting five, six, seven uh, level of player. But if the fact that they're having to use him so high up the order, are they using him in the same way that they used Andy McBride and the same way that Dutch are using Basta Leader? Or are they, are they thinking that he just has to be up there? But no, I think there's plenty of questions when it comes to the island batting. Um, they have not been able to replicate that level of batting uh, that they had before. And it's I know it's a big concern uh, within Irish cricket at the moment. And I'm not sure that there's there's maybe one – I'm trying to think of the young guy that's been hyped up to me. There's one player coming through that's quite young that's been hyped up. But it does feel like from the discussions I've had with these teams and, and the people involved that Scotland is the team that's found a little bit more younger batting talent to come through. I saw Jones make his runs the other day. Um, and Ireland's in a bit of a holding pattern with that. They seem to be able to find, um, uh, well, seam bowlers almost at will, you know, good quality seam bowlers, um, and there's a lot of teams out there that would be happy with Mark Adair and Josh Little um, over the next probably five years or so, um, but the batting doesn't seem to be quite at that level, and, yeah, I, I have concerns for it in all three formats, if we're being honest. Thanks for your question. I'm going to call it there, everyone. Um, for those who don't know, uh, we're doing a daily show a uh, couple of hours after the World Cup every day on YouTube, uh, the World Cup mood board, which has been great fun. Uh, a few changes happening in the 99.94 the, uh, uh, 
um, thing. So there's a couple of new podcasts to look out for very soon, very, very soon, like this weekend soon or next early next week for one of them. Obviously, Edges and Sledges have come across. I did a crossover episode with them uh, recently, so go have a listen to that. Um, uh, but there's um, there's certainly um, uh, there's certainly a lot coming on with 99.94 uh, during this World Cup, uh, and we're trying to do a video slash uh, written piece every day. And I've got a bunch of podcasts. I've got I think we've got two crossover podcasts due out this week and another crossover uh, sorry i should say introductions to the new new shows coming out this week so one that i think is going out on sunday another one that will go out on monday i believe um and then the week after we've got another one so lots of new shows are coming up on 99.94 so if you're following a major um team uh the chances are by the end of this world cup we should have most of them covered um, and we're not that far away from some of the other um, lower end uh, international, major international, um, sorry, m- lower end international teams as well. Um, and, so, you know, lots of uh, new things happening at 99.04. As always, thanks to Bodyline T-shirts. Got the lily on today. God, I must drop my phone. Uh, and thank you to everyone for coming on to the Spotify Live um, uh, to chat with us again. Um, and, uh, yeah, just keep an eye out. When, and I'm doing lots of stuff. I won't be sleeping during this World Cup, it looks like. Talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Wagon Wheel on 99.94. Remember to download our app or just search for West Indies, India, England, South Africa, and Sri Lanka with the search term 99.94 where you find podcasts or on YouTube. This show has an ad-free version via Patreon, which also allows you to ask questions before anyone else and many other extras as well. There is a link in the show notes. And if you want more content, well, I have good news for you because we have a lot of things. You can follow us on YouTube where we make all kind of crazy stuff like the complete history of New Zealand opening batters and how Kagisa Rabada was dismissed from a zombie ball. We do a similar thing on TikTok. I also have an emailer that sends out a couple of columns a week and we run another podcast called Double Century on the History of Cricket. This podcast is hosted by me, Jared Kimber. It is produced by Nick McCorriston. We also have a great support team from 42 with Rati Joshi on socials, Orijoti Senapia producing podcasts, Maida Akam producing some of the shows, and Makunda Banredi as the head of YouTube content. Mm-hmm.